0: Hi, everyone. I'm Summer. I'm Carrie. And this is the podcast. I'm nervous. <laughs> oh, don't be nervous. be fine. Fuck. <laughs> oh, my God. What the hell just happened? <laughs> what the hell? Oh. What is happening? <laughs> um, make sure you come back. We're going to do this bi weekly. So make sure you come back to talk to to us more about, you know, sex, drugs, and (laughs) self-improvement. This is Hopoxia podcast. Uh, And as you see, you can actually see me this time. I got a new phone. Looks so clear. Thank you. So we told you we would be talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or actually, I'm sorry, sex, drugs, and self-improvement, although I, I got thrown off by Carrie's t-shirt. She's got me sidetracked. Um, and so we're going to dive right in that, with that today. We have Dr. Faith, uh, who I affectionately referred to as the fuck lady, uh, <laughs> Which she can uh, explain later because she has uh, a number of books that all have the word fuck in the title, which I am a big (laughs) fan of. (laughs) How are you today, Faith?
1: I'm good. How are y'all? I mean, I say I'm good, but I'm middle-aged. So like my body aches and I've
0: had a headache for a month, but that's like, that's good. (sighs) That is just this whole state of existence at this point, right? Yeah. I, I didn't expect it to happen so early. Like I knew that happened but I thought it was, you know, later now. Yeah, no, it's now. And it's tough, you know, when you still look
1: fine, but you know, your body still hurts like an old person. It's a very, it's a bad (laughs) thing.
0: Oh my, I I stayed in bed an extra hour this morning for the sole reason of, for the first time in months, I woke up with no pain. And so I said, I'm going to lay here because as long as I don't move and I don't get up, (laughs) <laughs> then I might stay pain-free. <laughs> so I just laid there. <laughs> okay, so you are what is your official title? Sex therapist? Um,
1: so I um I have a postdoc in sexology specifically. Okay. Um so there's not like a lot of designations around that, but some certifications do sex therapy, some do sexology and mine is actually sexology. So, um, basically I, I do a lot of work around, um, sexual intimacy and, you know, physical intimacy, my background is trauma therapy. And so that, like, I wasn't going in like, Oh, I just like to talk about pervy kinky shit. Like I'm cool with it, but that wasn't like my grand the goal. (laughs) But that's what a lot of people really needed to work on um, if you're doing trauma therapy. And so I had to go back and learn a lot more because most doctoral program, or master's and doctoral programs don't really um, cover that um, for therapy degrees. So that's why I got the postdoc.
0: Oh, okay. So before we get started, because we're going to talk about kink and some things today, but before we go there... The discourse, by the way, about kink and pride this past season really highlighted the fact to me that a whole lot of people don't even know what kink is, <laughs> what, you know, what's, what What constitutes kink, any of that, um, but I would like to start with you giving your definition of sex. Please, because I've seen way too many people who are still on the, it depends on what the definition of is, is nonsense. Yeah. yeah. So- I mean, I I talk about sex, and I did a TED talk some
1: years mm-hmm. ago, and started with a definition, and it was really about this involvement of it doesn't have to be genitalia, um, but uh, involvement involvement of any sort of erogenous zones for that the purpose of 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 pleasure, of connectedness, those kinds of things. So I have a very broad definition. sex because there was a lot of people that don't have you know p and V intercourse and don't want to and it has you know and so we have to be expansive to how people express themselves or or don't so um it can be it's for me it's about pleasure it's about connectedness and whatever is an erogenous zone for you in that process
0: okay so since the um posts about soaking and hump jumping just went viral again let's be clear that soaking is sex i am sorry to all the mormon youth out there you are having sex it is hump hump jumping is perhaps the most boring threesome i have ever heard of just please go ahead and have sex yeah Uh, okay so can you define kink for us I mean, to
1: to me, that's any what is considered, and I and I say this culturally, it's in a culturally considered unconventional sexual preference or behavior, right? So what you because know, we're saying, well, it's unconventional. What does that mean? It means that within our cultural paradigm. So what maybe unconventional in one place is a vanilla Wednesday in another place. So, you know, every culture sort of has its own, and that could be cultures even within, so I'm not even saying like, well, in the U.S., but that could be, like you mentioned like in the Mormon church, What 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 is um, unconventional? Um, and so anything that's sort of outside of that, those norms of convention is the kink umbrella.
0: Okay. All right. So... Um, what is BDSM? So BDSM is any sexual
1: preferences or behaviors that include like bondage, discipline, dominance, submiss- submission, sadomasochism. So it's about a power exchange. So people think of it as being about pain, and it and it can be, um, you know, pleasurable pain. But it's really about that power exchange and being able to create a space where you can play with power and play with those dynamics safely.
2: Okay.
0: Because that's what Carrie's into, right, Carrie? Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. uh, I am the dynamic.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. She mentioned that before. Um. So I want. I have a question about when we had talked before. You know, when I had the old podcast, Carrie had mentioned at the time she, we were talking about porn, mm-hmm. and she had mentioned she. I I think the quote was, "I'm really into BDSM porn for some reason." And I think we've now established the reason. Um, (laughs) So is that pretty typical, like that people aren't necessarily so aware, so they're only partaking of it like in the form of porn, but as they get more comfortable, they explore it? Is that pretty typical of how the evolution goes for people or... Um, I don't know that I've seen any research about that. Um, And and of
1: course, you know, being sexuality is so nonlinear. I don't know if that would even be something that we could get really good numbers on. We do have a tendency to like what we like in terms of watching erotic performance. Um, For some people, that's very much fantasy based and it's not based on what they actually like to do. That's just a different playful space for them to be in. I mean, I would say BDSM is becoming so much more common now that it's probably less of a thing that you had to either like bump into a partner that already had experience in that area or you bumped into erotic performance stuff around it, you know, that you had ended up at... At a like a drag show that involved that, or you know, porn or erotic imagery or something that involved that, but now, like with like 50 Shades of Grey and everything, it's so prevalently out there. And by the way, 50 Shades of Grey is not BDSM, it's a (laughs) beautiful. Yes. But that opened people's interest into that, so it may it there may have been people that like really sort of jumped into experimenting with it in person versus seeing you know reading about it, seeing imagery or whatever, um, because of the the movies and those heinous books.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awful, awful. So, how did you get into it, Carrie?
2: Um, I think I always kind of had like a tendency to go more towards it. And then I just kind of like started exploring like the porn side of it and like researching. And then one day I was just like, I'm going to do it. And here I am. (laughs) It was pretty like slow journey for me though.
0: So once you decided you were going to try experimenting, what did you do? Go look for a partner
2: who was Um, already
0: in the scene or what? (laughs)
2: I researched a ton before I ever, like, started thinking about being in the scene because I wanted to know, like, what it was and, like, definitions of things and how people talked about stuff way before I ever wanted to do it because that terrified me. Okay. Just being, like, headfirst into it. Um, after, like, researching it, then I started talking to, like, people about it um, and then started, like, trying to be in the scene. Um my journey was pretty like baby stuffish.
0: <laughs> that's her anxiety. She's gotta go really <laughs> slow on everything
2: <laughs>
0: and,
1: I mean and that makes sense and if whenever somebody like therapeutically that's exploring that, that's what I suggest is. Um, You know, these, you know, terms to know, what are you looking for in terms of red flags, green flags, somebody, um, you know, there's a difference between somebody that's a dom and somebody that's abusive, Um, you know, how does the power dynamics in exchange work? You talk about, like, going to a munch and meeting people. I'll try and connect them to other people in the community that, you know, have really worked hard to create, like, these very safe spaces. So that, to me, is far more, makes far more sense then, like jumping in, and you're like, "Hi, I went. I was vanilla yesterday, and now I'm on the inverted crop <laughs> Play. I, don't know how I feel about. It.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so can you go over real quick the the difference between a dom and someone who's abusive? Because, as we know, a lot of the general public has only seen examples of abuse called BDSM. Yeah. Um. Well, and.
1: I mean the the big thing that I think of people people who are, don't know a lot about the scene don't know is the dom is the is not the person with the power in the dynamic. The person with the power is the sub or whoever is playing that role in that scene because the the sub is the one that's having to set the boundaries right? And saying, this is okay. This is not okay. Being a dom is a lot of work because you're like creating the space for somebody and somebody that's abusive is not doing that, right? If somebody's abusive, it's, it's about them and what they want and they're pushing boundaries. Um, you know, either they're either being physically aggressive or they're being whiny and shitty when they're not getting what they want. And that's the exact opposite of what a BDSM, a healthy BDSM dom does. It's not abusive at all. They're, they're creating a space to give somebody an experience and they're enjoying that experience as well. But they have to be in complete control of, you know, what they want, because they have to be able to pull back and stop at any time, no matter how excited they are, that they have, they're and they're working harder. When I have friends that are, you know, trying out that space, I'm like, oh, my God, being a dom is exhausting. Ugh, I don't want to whip somebody that much. I was, like, sweating. Right. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, and so that's what people have this idea, you know, that's when I say like, this is very much about a power exchange and playing with power in a different way. And that's one of, that's one of the prevalent ways that we need to think about BDSM differently. Um, cause I have people that say, oh, well, you know, this person suffers a significant trauma history. And so they're re- reenacting that by being a sub in a BDSM scene. And I'm like, no, they're, they're probably healing that because they now have all this power in this situation and they can create this experience for themselves where their boundaries are being respected. And so that can be an incredibly healing experience if you have a trauma history.
2: I, I think that's why I enjoy like a lot of the scene play and like the power exchange part of it because it, mm-hmm. it seems like it helps a lot.
1: Yeah you know and the 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 differential that i always ask about therapeutically if somebody's worried like hey i like i'm watching like i'm getting into this stuff that is like i'm i'm getting further out <laughs> you know um from vanilla or i'm i'm watching erotic performance stuff that's a little dark like i'm darker than maybe that i thought that i would and i'm trying to parse out am i am i being like reactive to my trauma or is this something that I genuinely enjoy? And for me, the question is, well, what while you're engaged in it, what's going on? Does it feel like this compulsive thing that you're having to act out and it doesn't feel good in that moment? And I'm saying orgasm aside, right? Sexual excitement aside, but like your, your mental and emotional space. How do you like, yeah, I love it, it's so great. Um, or you know, I really like, I just felt this compulsion to act this out. And to me, that's the the difference in being able to be in a very playful space and play with power dynamics versus reenacting a trauma. Cause usually when I ask clients that they're like, oh, well I, you know, I have all the shame and I'm like, okay, so if nobody gave a shit, like what you were doing, everyone's like, let you reflect how he, oh, that'd be amazing. I'm like, okay, so this is not. You don't, you're not actually ashamed, society's shaming you, there's a difference. You like what you like. The problem is other people do not like you like what you like. Yeah.
0: So how do we actually develop the, I guess our preferences? I don't really want to say kink, cause we, you know, like I said, like you said, that's defined outside of us, but it's all about what we, what we like so how does that actually develop for people um there is
1: in you know where there's not a lot of research i mean funding research in these kinds of areas um is difficult i mean there's a few people that are working very hard to um to have better research not i mean not just around kink-fed BDSM, but around, you know, porn use and all these other, um, things like Joshua Grubbs, if anyone follows him on Twitter, does a ton of research in this area. So we do have research that shows, for example, uh, you know, people who, um, express interest in BDSM get turned on by BDSM porn, the way people who like a more vanilla approach get turned on by vanilla porn. So some of it is just like that, just people be like that, oh. um, We do know that people who are on that higher end of the sexual bell curve are more likely to engage in kink, fat BDSM. I mean, I make it, I liken it to like, if you have this restaurant that you like and you only go a couple times a month, you're probably gonna get just like your favorite dish on the menu when you go. If you eat at that restaurant like all the time, you're probably gonna try different stuff on the menu. You know, just for, like, if, if, if that, if we just are very highly sexually active um, with ourselves, with others, we're going to explore more in that area rather than just have the same wink every time. Um, and again, it's about being able to play with power and control, which can be um, something that people like as a part of it. And we're adding sexual excitement to that, but it's doing more than that. It's a safe way of playing with sexual fantasies. Um, you know, like close to half of of women, cis women have had um, a fantasy about rape does not mean that we want to be raped or sexually assaulted, but being able to play with sort of those fantasies in a safe space um, can be a really cool and fun experience. Um, And then we also know that certain things exist for um, survival of the species, that there's evolutionary benefits to a lot of these things. so especially when we look at things like fetishes, which tend to be more the domain of at least cis men. I don't know um, about trans men so much because, again, research is lacking because there's a there's a testosterone imprinting that happens that makes sense for survival. So I like I'm super curious as like if trans men are taking tea, if, they're, if they get that same effect is what happens is things that are around you imprint into these interests. So we don't, again, not a lot of research, more case study stuff. And it's not trauma-related stuff, but like, oh, yeah, I was really into, like, you know, Western stories. And the girls were always tied to the the tracks and the cowboy went and rescued them and untied them. And I would get, like, really excited in these stories. And that's why I like, like, group play now kind of stuff. Like, there was an imprinting that happened. Um, but we know that, uh, there's Im- the imprinting makes sense because there's always an uptick in like things like foot fetishes. At the same time, there's an uptick in STIs um, in any area because then like so like when syphilis was through the roof, there was an uptick in foot fetishes because syphilitic sores don't hide in toes. So if you were winking to feet, then oh. right then you're much more likely to survive this STI um, bump in your area to then go on and survive and, and have kids later, or, you know, all these other things that we need to do for the species. So there's always been reasons even beyond like, Hey, this is just what we're around, but it makes sense that our brain would be like, Oh yes, feet. Right. So there's, and also like, it's just, it's fun. People like having fun. Sex is supposed to be
0: fun and BDSM
1: mm-hmm. is of fun. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I had no idea there was a connection like that for fetishes. Yeah, That's interesting. Uh,
1: there, there is um, there Jesse Baring um writes. He is in I want to say Australia or New Zealand, but he's an evolutionary psych, um, psychologist and he's written several books. And two of them are specifically about evolutionary psychology of sex. He wrote Why is the penis shaped like that? Um, and, and he wrote um, Perf. And so a lot of those are, like, based on what we know about evolution and patterns that we can see in this demographic data is, yeah, like, syphilis got really bad in this time period, and all of a sudden there was a bunch of foot porn, and, you know, and then we can sort of make these connections of why these things are happening and makes sense. So, so those books are really good, and it's really helpful, like you know, because working with clients, I can be like, oh, yeah, that's like, that's super normal. And that's not even just me saying, like, do whatever you want. I don't give a shit. But no, there's very good reasons why you're into that. It's not just because you're a fucking weirdo. Not There's anything wrong with being a fucking weirdo. But you're, you're a fucking weirdo for reasons. Yeah. Okay.
0: Now, I remember I learned from you that humans made dildos before we even invented the wheel. Yes, so, but like so five you know, years, yeah. five thousand years. We got them priorities, <laughs> man. I tell you. <laughs> so, do we know how far back porn exists?
1: Well, and what's what's interesting about that is, yeah, we kind of do. Um, so, David Lay. Um, if your last name is Lay, you have to be a sex researcher. I think them's the rules. <laughs> Um, but he's, and he's another, he's like another really good person to follow on sex therapy. Twitter, um, is one of his books. He wrote, um, ethical porn for dicks, which is a great book. He also wrote the myth of sex addiction. Um, but ethical porn for dicks he talks about, and he actually shows the images, sort of the cave painting images depicting sexual acts. And also points out that not only did they exist as like these still images, that they were typically painted in places sort of like behind where fires would have been used. So like it was on the cave wall, but that way like the smoke and the flames would make the pictures move. <laughs> like so that was really our first porn movies. Nice. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so we've always had our priorities in in that sense. And pretty much everything is invented becomes, you know, like the internet was invented for the military and got privatized for porn very quickly. Pretty much everything we've done gets privatized for porn very quickly.
0: (laughs) If it exists, there's a porn genre genre
1: genre for it. For it. Yes. And if there, if there is a new technology available, we will find a way to like stick it up our
0: butts or something. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just lost the next question I was going to ask. Oh, okay. So <laughs> Carrie and I both grew up in, you know, weird Christianity. Um, evangelical <laughs> specifically. So in those circles, still, they teach porn is addictive. It will destroy your brain. It's as addictive as heroin, I think, is what they like to throw around. <laughs> what say you? <laughs> No, um, I mean, yeah, no. Um, and that's not
1: me saying that. That's what the research says. Um, there is a reason that porn addiction does not exist in the DSM or the ICD, nor does sex addiction. Now, anybody can have an out-of-control behavior, and that's not the same thing as an addiction. Yeah. Um, and that it's that's really important. And of course, you see a lot of these in these these places that are treating sex addiction and porn addiction and cell phone addiction and all these things that are not actually addictions. They're making tons of money off of this, and they there are a lot of them that have these um, these ties to these more evangelical faith based communities. And this this idea of like of controlling people by controlling their behavior and shaming their behavior, like no fap, like all of those places are or tend to be tied to fundamentalism. Um, They're they're just the brain, everybody's brains light up during sex. Like that's how it works. (laughs) That's how it's supposed to work. If we're getting back into evolutionary psychology, we're supposed to like it. So we will continue to do it. So we will probably get species. That is, brains are supposed to light up during sex. That's what they all, everybody's brain does. So it's not like, oh my goodness, this is just as addictive as heroin. and also, if somebody's having an out-of-control behavior around sex or porn or whatever, you ha- we have to be treating it differently than we would treat another an actual addiction. The only thing in the DSM that's listed as, as a process addiction, meaning that it's not a substance like heroin, but something that you engage in, um, is actually gambling. Because gambling does change and light up the brain the same way a substance does. And in fact, one of the best treatments for gambling addiction is an opioid blocker. Uh, The one place that the DSM and the ICD differ is on gaming. The ICD does list gaming as an addiction, but really what they're talking about is like the... um, Gaming, when you have, like, they have those boxes, um, like, I'm not a gamer, so I'm forgetting the word, but you, like, you purchase these boxes and you don't know what's going to be in them to help the game. And so, basically, they're talking about gaming that has a gambling aspect to it, which is, and and, and the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the one that the APA has here, says, yeah, but that's not the same thing. Not all games, like, Monopoly is not fucking addictive. It's boring. Yes, <laughs> you know? It is. Right, we're talking about a very specific kind of gaming. And so like if you're using the DSM, that doesn't exist. So if somebody says, hey, I think I have a sex addiction, Like I'm looking at, you know, what, what is the, okay, so what does that mean for you? You know, how do you perceive this as being out of control? Sometimes, sometimes their behavior really is very out of control and dangerous. Sometimes they just, they're perceiving it as being out of control because of like the history that they grew up with or whatever. Um, You know, and looking at other stuff, like a lot of times what people consider that they have, um. That they have some form of neurodiversity. There is a huge overlap between having ADHD and engaging in risky sex, sexual behaviors. Um, you know those kinds of figuring out like what is the behavior and what's the under what's the underlying issue. Um, David uh, Lay writes, uh, his book The Myth, Myth of Sex Addiction is great, um, and he writes about how when whenever. If people are like using, you know, more porn and you know, they're just they're wanking a lot, it's not all of a sudden they've gotten to this addictive territory. There's probably other stressors going on and that's their coping mechanism. And as those stressors go down or are managed, then so does that as the coping mechanism. Um, usually, when I have somebody that's saying like they're having a problem with this, you know, they've been at home, you know, even pre-COVID, like oh, I work from home, and now everybody's home. Um, so, like, like we're having, like, let's get them out, let's get them doing things. Um, if they're, you know, suffering from depression, anxiety, trauma history, working on that stuff, and then the, and also being really pragmatic about being safe in those in their behaviors as well. Get on prep. Um, get a fucking IUD, have plan B if you, you know, if you have a uterus, you know, and kind of because I know people, too, that are just they're bipolar. Um, and so their sexual behaviors, like, they, you know, they take their medications, they're doing everything you're supposed to do. But if you, you know, if you live with a mood disorder, sometimes that gets spiky, even if you're doing everything right. And so part of their treatment plan is to protect themselves by being on PrEP and all these other things because they know that their decision making doesn't get really good when they're hypomanic. But that doesn't mean they have a sex addiction. It means that they're hypomanic and a lot of their brain safeties get turned off. So yeah, I have, and I, I mean, I have clients all the time where I'm like, okay, hey, like I'm single now, you know, I was married for 30 years, I'm going to get digged down and I'm like right on. So let's look at, you know, you know, being safe in this process and they come back and like, Hey, yeah, like we got a broken condom or I got, you know, stealth removed or whatever. And I'm so glad they told me to like get on prep and all those other things um, I mean, all of those things um, are very helpful too. Knowing that you have a tendency to enjoy like more risky activities, having multiple partners,
0: those kind of things. Um, just because people have asked me this question a lot, so I know a lot of people don't know. Can you explain what prep is?
1: Yeah, um, it's a it's what it is is a medication that significantly reduces your chance of getting the HIV virus, um, through, through sexual intercourse. I think it's like 95% effective, maybe more than that. Somebody's going to like challenge our lyrics and yell at us on Twitter. Um, our, uh, Statistics. And I think that for like intravenous drug use, it's still like 80% effective. You know, intervenous drug use, obviously it's you know, the it's going directly into the veins, so the body's having to fight that off. So you can take a pre-exposure, which is PrEP, which means this is just something that you're on. Um, and you can also get PEP, which is a post-exposure, um, meaning like, you know, you went out, you weren't planning on doing anything, you had a little bit too much to drink, you woke up with somebody. You smell like, it smelled, you like, don't remember a lot, but it smells like something maybe happened. So you can take if you're, you know, if you have, if you think that you may have had exposure, just like taking a plan B pill to, um, to prevent pregnancy
0: after the fact. Is and it there- just, just as effective after post-exposure?
1: Um, it is almost as effective.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's always
1: going to be better to to plan ahead, just like, you know, if you're trying to prevent pregnancy, having something ahead of time rather than taking plan B letter, later is going to be easier on your body and a little bit more effective. I can say I have bumped into frustrations of PrEP being thought of as being something for... Um, gay men or sex workers, and I've had clients that are you know cis straight women who have gotten asking for it, and they're like, "No, you don't need that. You're not high risk." They're like, "I'm dating, and and I mean, I'm mostly dating men, and a lot of men are trash. So this is probably just the idea for me." Um, and have bumped into that, so I usually tell people like, if this is something that you're, you know, wanting to get for yourself, there's clinics typically that specialize in, you know, STI testing, giving people prep, um, those kinds of things. So I send people like in San Antonio, it's in Austin, it's the Kind Clinic. So I'll send people directly to the Kind Clinic for that. Planned Parenthood does, rather than a lot of like um, PCPs, like, oh, you don't need that. You're a middle-aged, woman. and like you know, you're a middle-aged woman. You're like, I'm a middle-aged woman that's getting digged down. Give me the prep, Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'm going to go, I'm going to use that exact phrase just to see what
2: reaction I get next time I go to the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) If they're a good doctor, they'll be like, hell yeah, bro. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I can tell you a lot of them are not, do not respond that way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) My doctor did. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You've I got
0: a good one.
1: Medical <laughs> professionals that are are very um you know comfortable with that kind of stuff. It's everybody is overwhelmed and their schedules are full, so that's getting more and more difficult as a year and a half into COVID. And I have an asshole cat here. Speaking of people who like DDSM, she's asking me to stink her butt. Um <laughs> My little bsm kitty so yeah anytime you have a doctor that's knowledgeable in that area far better but you know i definitely had clients just try and get it from their regular pcp who was deeply uncomfortable with it i'm like yeah just go to kind click it's it's. Yes. okay let's see anything
0: you're you're in the scene carrie with any questions for faith i don't even my i am so far out of my element here. Carrie actually had to teach me what tentacle porn was a few years ago. and Um, (laughs) Right? And so um, my only exposure to BDSM literally is, I went to an author con one time and I went to one of the little um, sessions where um, that was being led by an author who writes BDSM (laughs) erotica. And she taught us how to make uh, a couple of little flogs and stuff. And that's really, that's really it. It's basically what they said in that one (laughs) session is basically all I know. (laughs) Uh, It's, it is such, and it's such a broad
1: category Um, even when you're like define it for me and you're kind of looking at me like that's a really general definition bitch Um, because it can be so many things you know it can be the inverted cross and nipple play it could be like I just you know some people love the aesthetics of rope corsetry and it's about how pretty it is and there's you know nothing about the actually being tied up or anything Um, there's some people that just like the power exchange and what they want is like they want their dom to tell them what to wear every day and there's there's no pain there's no kind of of, there's nothing physically going on there it's so the power exchange of somebody telling you what to do or whatever okay. i
2: think like the most like interesting part of bdsm for like me personally is all the different types of stuff that people like experiment with and like the types of roles people take on <laughs> i like i don't think i've ever met like i'm a submissive um i don't think i've ever met like a submissive that does like one kind mm-hmm. of mission. same as like with dominance i don't think i've ever met a dom that does like one kind of thing i like it's so interesting to me to like talk to people and figure out what kind of stuff they like to do and like the different hats they wear it's so interesting and cool to me
1: yeah, um, have you have you found that there they do have like the thing that they're most into like?
2: Because I found like like rope people are really fucking into rope. Yes. The... <laughs> I, I don't think I have like a specific thing for me personally yet. I'm still exploring. Like my dynamic is still pretty fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like for me and a lot of like the submissives that I gravitate to. I think we're all mostly into, like, the masochism part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's other little parts of my submission that's, like, whatever for me, but uh, that are specific to me is what I mean. But, like, I think I gravitate more towards the masochists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just weird. Like, I don't know why that would be, like, a thing that people are into, but, like, we are, and it's fun. <laughs> I enjoy it. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, because you, I mean, you are getting um, all those neurotransmitter releases, not the same as as heroin, but <laughs> that it is an enjoyable thing, just like, you know, watching your favorite show that you, on Netflix, that you had waited all week to watch, or I mean, more than that. But like, we have things that we enjoy that, of course, are sending off serotonin and, and those kinds of things. Um, but there is not a BDSM receptor in the brain the way there's an opioid
2: receptor in the brain. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I also tend to gravitate a lot towards like the littles. Mm-hmm. Like that, that means like Do you want to explain or do you want me to? <laughs> um I can explain like from for me. Uh when I go to like little space, I tend to age regress. Oh, okay, yes. I have read about this. So, okay. Just I tend to go back to like like early like middle school maybe like probably like six or seven maybe eight like I don't really know like what age I go to for me personally but like I tend to get really needy and <laughs> I need all of the attention and like cuddles and like toys and blanket like coloring like it's just I, a lot of people say like the same thing but there's people that go younger and sometimes people want like the pacifiers and they want like the diapers and they want to be like bottle fed or spoon fed. Like, it really depends on every little for me personally, I like to have like stuffed animals and blankets and I like the color and watch Disney movies and do that kind of stuff. Um,
1: And I, I think that was when we were talking earlier, like when I'm looking at it diagnostically, if somebody's concerned yeah. about their behavior, like that little space, being in that subspace is a little, that's one of the places that people tend to get concerned about that I ask about. Like, okay, are you enjoying it in that moment or is like, were you molested at that age and you feel like this need to recreate that versus being being able to be small and safe and all of these things um so that that's one of that's probably the one that people ask me about a lot or when i'm doing consulting work
2: it's like figuring that out um there's a yeah i like Uh, to have space and recreate it because that's about the age when a lot of my trauma started so i like to mm -hmm. make like space and have like my caregiver with me like watch (laughs) and be able to to be in that space in, in, in a
1: non-traumatic way, right? Versus, yeah. Versus I'm going to be with somebody who's unsafe, who is treating me the way my abuser treated me. And I'm basically just reliving this abuse versus being able to, every age we've ever been is somewhere in our bodies, right? And we connect to that in many different ways. I mean, we've all had an experience where we felt like really abandoned. And so we sort of go back to the age of our first big abandonment and we're emotionally reacting from that place and so choosing to be in that space of like hey I really miss what it likes to be eight years old and be safe and just get to do things for the and like be able to be excited about stuff without being made fun of or you know and all those other things that that happen and being able to be playful in that space and there is probably the best book I've I've read continuing book recommendations it's called the big book for littles I can't remember the author's name but she is um, she is a professional big and a scene little so she can speak to um both spaces because of because she's a switch in big little play and so that's a book and it's self published um but it's, it's a really good book about being in that space and being in that space, you know, like safely and, and those kinds of things. So that's the one that I recommend whenever like a therapist reaches out and going like, I'm kind of getting freaked out about this little play because of their trauma history and I want to make sure that they're being okay you know and, and how are they in subspace what's their aftercare you know for those kinds of things and planning around all of that because i there has been only one time where what somebody was engaging in was clearly only trauma reactive and it wasn't really an enjoyable thing like he was getting sexual release but enjoyment is not the same thing. Right. And what he, he was like, there was something around his trauma that he was sort of trying to work out in his sexual expression. And it's like, okay, so we're going to work on the trauma. And this is the only, like, this is the only case I can think of in all these decades where I'm like, I really want you to not engage in that kind of erotic imagery use right now while we work on this and let's see what happens and it turns out that that really wasn't his viable interest and as we worked on the other stuff he real like he had that really that it was a reactive thing that that he was doing because generally what people like is what people like and it's not harmful you know as long as we're being really careful around things he's he, there's only one person i can think of there and i'm trying to be careful like not to give any specifics about it but um that what he was watching and engaging in was was very much about this this need to process his trauma but he was only re-traumatizing
2: yeah i keep a lot of like my little stuff like (laughs) non-sexual that's just how it has to be for me i know other people are different
1: and and that's a that's a space too where we see more consensual (laughs) non-monogamy Because there's you may have an interest something like that where you know the primary partner is not interested in that, but they're like, hey, but if that's your thing, cool. I want you to enjoy that. You're not my property. So having like you know the, the, you're a little and you have like this big that you see a couple times a month, fine. Um, they talk the 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 book um, the Ethical Slut actually uses that specific example of where like BDSM scene stuff can be. In um, consensual non- monogamy, can be really helpful to each other. Uh, Jay Wiseman right now is working on a book about the overlap. Jay, um, he's done, um, he he wrote S and M 101. He published. He's published a lot with Greenery Press, which is now a retired publishing company. But the sort of the publisher that really specialized in like kink type stuff was Greenery Press. So some of their books are still available. They haven't like all went out of print, but stuff is falling out of print since the company's closed. So I don't know where he's going to publish it, but the one he's working on now is specifically about consensual non-monogamy and BDSM as an overlap. And he's in his seventies. He's like the grandpa (laughs) of
2: BDSM. Um. I'm definitely going to have to read like all of these books you've been recommending. (laughs) (laughs) Jay Jay Wiseman is a really cool person to follow
1: on Facebook um and a lot of the stuff he's written like you can you know buy stuff directly from him and stuff his i have like a whole shelf of greenery press books that i have collected over the years greenery press was the ethical slut um that's janet hardy and dossie easton and they founded greenery press so there would be a space for that a lot of these books do end up being self-published just for that reason but like my publisher publishes in that domain um I think like Jessica Kingsley Publishing publishes a little bit in that domain. Clea does, but a lot of people end up self-publishing. Um, and I've even had ask, people ask me about it. I'm like, honestly, you'd probably just do better self-publishing that because that's such a specific thing. And that way, you know, you're just selling it directly rather than dealing with a publishing house and you really only sell a couple hundred copies. So sometimes it's about find like having to search for it and seeing how they're reviewed and asking people like, hey, what's a good book about... You know X Y Z and getting recommendations. And my clients that are in the scene will always send me stuff when they find cool stuff. They're like, oh, there's a new, there's a new yes, no, maybe checklist out here that I really liked, or this was a really good blog about love languages and PDSM or whatever. And so they're really good about sharing things back with me, knowing that I'm just like I'm an information
2: nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> also real important can we please talk about aftercare and how does not age enough because people don't talk about it yeah i mean
1: you know the the basic definition is when you're so when i I use the term playful space it is our scene. like that's this is it's a break from reality and we're you know creating this this space in time and physicality to engage in something that we enjoy with boundaries and parameters and all these things. And so, and especially um, you, you get into a, a headspace around that, you know, we, we call it like subspace specifically where um, you're, you're just very middle-brained. <laughs> um, and so sometimes your aftercare is kind of like bringing you back up, making sure that you're okay, Um, people think of aftercare as a physicality of like, Ooh, like it looks like that whip really like gashed you open. Let's put some Neosporin on it. That, but to me, it's more the emotional, Hey, how are you doing? Did anything maybe end up being more than you liked that you want to sort of take off your personal menu? Um, and I think that, I mean, I think, I know that doms need aftercare too, because their role is so specific and they have to have, so much control and it's so um, physically and emotionally exhausting for them too is making sure like they're okay how how did they feel about that scene was there anything that bumped into their boundaries or they were uncomfortable with or they didn't know how to communicate with because it can be very hard to communicate in that moment a lot of times people are not very verbal when they're in their subspace and so that aftercare can also about the communication not just like the cuddling and cleaning wounds or whatever
2: yeah a lot of it for me is like i need like the physical touch after it because i get really overstimulated stimulated and yeah times. and you need to be grounded yeah yeah i like i have to have it if i don't like i'm never gonna play with you again like yeah. that's-
1: <laughs> and that's why con- you know contracting around stuff like this should include like the aftercare plan
2: um, um, very quickly
1: yeah and also, and, and I tell people too, like if you know that when you're you know, deep in subspace, you, you're not verbal is you have to have like nonverbal signifiers and you have to have, you know, ways of being, you know, ways of being safe and checking on, on safety specifically. Like I'm the geek that I go to like a meetup for um, rope work and I'm asking questions like, what if you have diabetic neuropathy? What do you do? And my husband is always like, oh my God. <laughs> Why do you take the fun out of fun? Like, but I have <laughs> hands and, like, you know, those, <laughs> you know, and so, like, that kind of stuff is really important information because I'm thinking, I mean, that's the stuff that I'm thinking about as a clinician is not just people's, you know, emotional walls, but their physical. And so, stuff like, okay, so you're tied up and you're like this, and you should be able to, you know, still have sensation in your hands or whatever. Like, well, if you have diabetic neuropathy, you don't know, you know, so part of the plan might be something like, okay, so. You know, you're tied up like this. Um, the dom is going to put his hand over yours and say, push up. And if you can't, he's going to cut the rope, right? Because that's showing that you're not safe. Um, so or in, in the aftercare would be like, hey, we didn't that and i realized you know i i have i don't have a whole lot of sensation in that hand and so i didn't notice that i had too much circulation cut off and I, i'm really having some problems now so that's something we have to be careful of so aftercare can even be noticing those things that we missed
2: that's what um my dominant and i like we discuss like every time even if it's just more like not so much like a scene just like us you know just having sex or whatever like we still talk about it after every time and make sure everything's good like the very first thing like we ever did was make safe words and like um like signals for each other like if we aren't able to speak me if i'm not able to speak um and it's just so important i don't think people talk about like safe words enough or like aftercare because aftercare is for every person and it's going to be different between like doms and subs even or like switches like (laughs) i know a bunch of switches that need like specific aftercare for when they're sub versus when they're dom and it's people need to talk about it more
1: And I've seen, that's where I say like Jay Wiseman being such a good person to follow on Facebook because he likes to posit those questions and you see people with a lot of extensive scene experience talking about those things in the notes, which is, which is super cool too. And you're like, oh shit, I didn't think about that. That's really important. That's cool. You know, because, you know, Jay is, um, is a dom. And so he's one of the first people I said like, hey, doms need aftercare too, guys. (laughs) We're sweating over here. Um, so. (laughs) Added, for people that are kind of interested in that, that's, that is a really good person to follow and writes very well on the topic, too.
0: Obviously. So how do we get people in general to talk about this stuff? Because I guarantee you, if I go to 90% of, say, I'm totally making that statistic up, by the way. Don't at me, please. Uh, <laughs> but most cis straight men and, and bring up aftercare, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I know that because they almost almost none of them do it. And it's yeah. even for like vanilla, like they can't, they need that too. And yeah, right. So so how do we get people to get more aware and start doing this stuff? Um. Well, first, of all, I mean, I second, I
1: love Gen Z because, like, I mean, as a Gen Xer, like they're just as dis- disaffected as we are, but they have. <laughs> There's a lot bigger numbers. They're going to be the ones that change the world. So I'm seeing that these conversations are being had earlier and more pragmatically just, at, you know, with different generations. I'm always like, here's the car keys. I want to ask you to fix my computer. Go fix the world. Thank you. Um, so that's helpful. I I think that it tends to be more an issue like somewhere like for our generation of not talking about it. And so we have like, except so it's the, okay, well, I guess we're going to, somebody has to have the conversation about the fucking birth control. I guess somebody has to have a conversation about the fucking aftercare or you ain't getting then. Um, and I, and I think that we need to be doing more of that. And that's why I like did a Ted talk some years ago and stuff is trying to get like Having that information out there from somebody with a lot of letters after their name is helpful right? Like, somebody else can talk about, like, hey, I'm a seenster and XYZ, and they're brilliant, and they know their shit, and what they're talking about is incredibly important, but everyone's like, ah, you're just a perv. I have a lot of letters after my name, and so, and my first name is Doctor, so people are like, oh, well, maybe that's very important then, you know, and that's why I do go back to, like, this is what we know from the research, this is what we don't know, because the research is limited, and try to ground it in that, so people realize this is just way that humans express themselves and there's no nothing fucking wrong with it and that these conversations are incredibly valuable but that's true like of all those conversations about active continuance consent you know i was at a radio show where i got in an argument about it it's like well that takes all the mystery out of it i'm like and the rape so that's fine <laughs> yeah. um, but it doesn't have to be I had a client who's kind of exploring the scene right now, and we talked about. I said, active continuous consent can be sexy when it's done well. And then, like, I remember we had that conversation a few months ago. She's like, Oh my God, I see what you mean by that. Like, you don't, I'm not doing anything till you tell daddy what you want. You have to use your words. You have to tell me what you want before I do anything. Is sexy. People think that it's going to be these uncomfortable SNL skit conversations, but we can. (laughs) (laughs) May I touch? Breast, um, or, or it can be done, and it can be done if if all of this is a playful space. Those conversations can be had in that space as well. You know, and and the uh, you're talking about you know, so straight men if they don't like it, then they can go fuck somebody else. Um, you know, but most men will be like, okay, and they'll they'll do whatever. And if they don't want you, then they go fuck someone else
0: well i mean i've told many of them that <laughs> just go pick someone else i'm not i this. don't like condoms like well cool then i guess you're going
1: to be having sex with your hand then because <laughs>
0: your hand doesn't care about a condom and i do yeah now my favorite is uh all the condoms in the world are too small for them i love uh, that excuse I, oh, it's been a, but i
1: posted a video where i put my hand in one mm-hmm. and was could you actually use a condom for fisting i was curious and i you know, I'm doing all this stuff with it and did not break the condom. And I have big hands um, compared to the rest of my body. Um, and if I could, like, fist somebody wearing a condom made for a dick, your dick is not that big.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, since we have made all those men cry, uh, <laughs> thank you for being here. And please um, shout out some of your books so people know where to go look. Oh, yes. Yeah, because you said, yes, I'm the fuck lady. So my blur is <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
1: Um, which is a book about trauma. And because it did so well and I became, you know, the lady who's unfucking the title, all my books have that in the title now. I've already lost that fight. And so it just, it is what it is. Um, the book that I wrote specifically around sexual intimacy is Unfuck Your Intimacy. And um, there is, there was a bunch of stuff on consent that I did not have room for. So that became a zine, which is like a small pamphlet speaking about consent and mostly consent, um, around sexual uh, uh, sexual acts, but consent can be all kinds of things. Um, and then the boundaries book, I think is a big relational one to um, unfuck your boundaries. Cause it's, it's about, uh, boundaries and different kinds of boundaries and then communication around them. And it talks about coercive control, um, Summer, I know that you've had a lot of conversations with people about that. Yes, he didn't beat you, but that's abusive. You know, maybe it's abusive, but that's fucked up. That's abusive. That's coercive control. Um, So, you know, I wanted to write a lot. They're like, hey, do you want to write a book about boundaries? I'm like, it's not going to be cute, but sure. And that's what they got. So that's a really good one, too, for um, people kind of trying to unpack that. I had somebody on Instagram comment she's like your boundaries book drug my ass into my bathroom and show my face in the mirror i hate you
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh wow
1: (laughs) i'm like is like the best that is like yes that was such such a good review of the book so um i've (laughs) written a trillion different books but those are the ones that probably really relate to this topic is the brain book is really my original trauma book um and the the intimacy one like i talk about fantasy stuff and i talk i do talk about bdsm i talk about sex not being addiction um, it's, it's a good overview of things that, um, I, and I've even had people's like, who were, you know, very highly experienced and comfortable in their bodies and all this stuff like, Oh, like, I didn't even think about that. I'm probably actually kind of gray sexual. And I didn't even really think about that because I was comfortable with all these other things. And then as you're writing about this, I had aha moments of things that I thought, Would maybe be like dumb or basic, or people weren't interested in. And I've had a lot of people say, like, no, that was still really helpful. And it shows up on a lot of like queer reading lists, specifically for conferences and BIPOC reading lists, because it is inclusive of all these different experiences. Um, you know, I, I use they, you know, pronouns. I, I talk about partners for, or, you know, not even like husbands and wives or girlfriends or boyfriends, but partner, partners. And, and I want everybody to like be able to see themselves and whatever their relationship dynamic is in my books. So I work really hard to make them inclusive because I want mainstream writing to also be inclusive. You shouldn't have to go to Greenery Press to see anything on King.
0: Well, I want everybody to go get the boundaries book because God knows we all need a <laughs> help on boundaries. And because so many, it's so normalized. You were talking about co- coercive control. A lot of things that are coercive control are so normalized that when I dare, whether it's you know personally or professionally, when I dare to point something out to someone, like that is not okay. They look at me with utter shock because they're like, no, this is just the way it is.
1: So like, no, it's not acceptable and you're not doing that to me. I'm too old for this shit. Didn't weren't you here when I just said I hurt every day? I am not taking shit off of you. And right.
0: That. I'm too tired to do that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> having having you know conversation with a family member about their partner and I'm like okay every time you have a problem and you say this and you know they cry and scream and XYZ and all these things that's coercive control because nothing ever changes. That's the game that they're playing with you is they do shitty ass behavior, they get called out they eh, don't leave me. I'm so sorry. And then the same thing happens a few weeks later. So that's coercive control. That's that's abusive. That's not like, oh my God, I am so sorry. What do we need to do differently? Let's solve this problem. It's you know, boohooing to have you feel bad and have you not leave, and then going back to the
0: same shit. This course of control. Apologies without changed behavior
2: are just manipulation. Mm-hmm. I work at a psychiatric hospital with teenagers, and I have to tell them that every day. Yeah. Every yeah. Day. I do so
1: much, okay, no, no, we're gonna name it, claim that that was abusive. I have, I have those conversations with people all the time. Like, I understand, like, and I do that with people that have engaged in those behaviors. I'm like, okay, so what you did there, that's a it's abusive. You stop that shit, you know, nicely and therapeutically. But, you know, that is not, and you know, that is not acceptable. And I understand that the world thinks that it is, but not here. Um, and you're not gonna like me much as a therapist. Um, maybe, and you may not come back, but I'm. We're, we're going to name it, claim it. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it because I know you swore off podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you coming for, here for us. Okay. There's only BIPOC podcasts right now. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, we are honored that you came here for us. Don't tell anybody that I was here. That's the only thing. Okay. <laughs> Your secret is safe with us and the internet. Watching. Yeah. <laughs> this was totally this
1: we totally recorded this in 2019, guys. All that okay. stuff about pandemic was just foresight. It's yeah. yeah. We
0: we <laughs> but, are very gifted um psychics. Yes. Yes.